Father, we know you're coming back because you promised it. And we know it won't be long because the signs are there. But you've come already to save and we are all in awe of the grace and mercy you gave us merely by an act of your love as Jesus died in our place. We celebrate that here every week, Father, and we study it today. And we thank you for the mercy and for the grace you show to each of us as we endeavor to walk with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, please, and let's get ready to study together in Matthew chapter 27. Pick up where we left off there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to make sure you have one so you can follow along with us. And we have these fine, strapping young men who walk up the aisle here with their Bibles in hand. These are for you. If you need one, just raise your hand. We'll drop it in your lap. And that's for you to use today or keep if you need it. Please raise your hand if you need a Bible. And while they're handing that out, the rest of us can open up there in chapter 27 in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're going to move to Jesus' second trial conducted by the Romans. We've been studying his first trial by the Jews. Let's revisit where we are. Jesus has just spent a sleepless night, first with his disciples at the Passover meal, secondly in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and then finally under arrest and under trial. The Jewish trial, which we've been studying, started with Annas. He was one of two high priests who served that year. The other was Caiaphas. After Annas had his shot at Jesus, we moved to Caiaphas's trial. And both of these trials we've studied uh, are shams. They are nothing more than perversions of justice. You have an innocent man charged with trumped up charges of blasphemy and he's found guilty despite his innocence. And he submitted to this charade because he was keeping the Father's will. He was obeying the father's plan that his son would go to the cross for the sins of the world. And as the trial with Caiaphas ended last week, you see the Jewish authorities in that room pronounced the verdict of guilty and of death on Jesus. They, they charge him with blasphemy of all things. And that was punishable by death. So this is now a death sentence for Jesus. But as you know, the Romans did not allow the Jews to carry out capital punishment in that day. So the Jewish authorities, who want to see Jesus dead, have got to find a way to convince the Romans to put him to death on their behalf. And because the Jews charged him with blasphemy, it's going to be tough because blasphemy means, you know, speaking against the God of Israel. And I got to tell you, the Romans couldn't care less about somebody speaking ill will against the God of Israel. So that meant the Jews had to accuse Jesus of something else, something that would be punishable by death under Roman law. And now that's the focus of the story. We move now to how that takes place, not only how the trial of the Romans goes here in this case, but also how the Jewish leaders manipulate Rome into getting the outcome that they want. And like the Jewish trial, the Roman trial takes place in two different locations under two different men. First, you're going to see Jesus standing before the Roman a leader of this province of Judea. They call him the, the procurator or the governor of this province. That's the man Pilate that we all know of. And Pilate is really the true power here. He's the guy that has all the cards. He's the one who has the Roman authority to condemn Jesus and to put him on the cross. But along the way, Pilate is going to try to do his best to wash his hands, both literally and figuratively, of the trial of Jesus. He doesn't want to condemn an innocent man. And there is a point in the story in which he sends Jesus to another authority 
to Herod Antipas, the supposed king of the Jews at the time, hoping that Herod would deal with Jesus in some way and take that burden off of Pilate's hands. But in the end, Herod just has some fun with Jesus and then sends him back to Pilate. Now, the time that Jesus spends with Herod is not recorded in Matthew's gospel, so we're not going to cover it in our study of Matthew. You can look at the details of that by looking at Luke's gospel. Luke is the one who tells us about this time with Herod. But throughout this back and forth, all of the the things that happen with the Roman trial, you have to remember the uh, Jewish leaders are going to be with Jesus throughout, wherever he goes, determined to see him die, determined to force that outcome. Eventually, they're going to succeed, as you know, in prodding a, a weak and vacillating Pilate into condemning Jesus against Pilate's better judgment. And Matthew gives us only the briefest overview of that whole scene. So as we go through what Matthew records here, there will be times along the way where I'll introduce things from the other Gospels just so that you have a better understanding of what goes on in this event. And even then, before we get to the Roman trial, Matthew wants to first handle a little loose end here, that is, what happens to Judas after Judas has betrayed Jesus? That's where we open today in chapter 27. So I'll begin reading there, verse 1. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, they led him away, and they delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. All right, chapter 27 opens up here on the morning of the day Jesus dies. Now, I want to reset you a little on the timeline here. It's been a while since we've talked about timeline as it applies to this week of events. So we are on the daytime now of Passover, and that was a Thursday morning in the year that Jesus died died. This is, if you're interested, it's April 10th, AD 27. If you wonder how we get to that date, there's an article on the website that explains it. But meanwhile, remember how Jews count time in terms of days. They count from sundown to sundown. So a Jewish day begins at sundown and completes on sundown the next day. And so the first half of every Jewish day starts in the dark. And the second half is daytime. So on this day, Passover began the night before at dark, And we are now entering the daytime half of the Passover day. That earlier evening when Passover came on Wednesday night, that's when every Jewish family would have taken their lamb, having had it sacrificed earlier that day, they would have taken it home and had a meal, the Passover meal that night in their home. And then the next morning, because all those lambs were sacrificed technically on the day before Passover in order to be eaten on the night of Passover, because they hadn't sacrificed any lamb on the actual day, The Jewish tradition had become to take one lamb into the temple court on the morning of the Passover day and sacrifice it at 9 a.m. That was the national Passover lamb sacrificed by the high priest. Well, on this year, you're going to have that same thing happening, 9 a.m., the lamb slaughtered in the temple court, but you're going to have a second national sacrifice happening at the same time. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus will be placed on the cross On the third hour, and in Mark's gospel, he uses Roman reckoning for time, 
And in the Roman way of counting time, the third hour of the day is, one guess, 9 a.m. So Jesus is nailed to the cross at exactly the same moment that the national lamb was being sacrificed inside the temple. We'll study more about that later when we get there. Meanwhile, the Jewish trial of Jesus before Annas and Caiaphas took place in the evening, overnight, in the early pre-dawn hours of Thursday. So again, that was all part of the Passover day. It was the first half that takes place at night. But when that trial was going on, remember we studied Peter. He was outside listening and then eventually denying Christ in those hours. Remember how that ended, though? Last week, as he gives his third denial, there's that well-known moment where the rooster crows at that time. Well, when do roosters typically crow? Right before sunup, typically, in the uh, last hour or so before the sun rises. And so that tells us that the denial that Peter gave as the trial was ending and Jesus was being beaten is right before 6 a.m. or so as it goes in that part of the world. So that tells us it's roughly now 6 a.m. on Thursday, sunup, the first hour of the Roman day. The Romans began their day at 6 a.m. And in three hours, Jesus will be on the cross. And he has spent the better part of five hours or so in the custody of the Jewish authorities before dawn. He's now beaten and bloodied and bound, we're told, marched from Caiaphas' home, which would have been in the upper district, the rich district of the city of Jerusalem, down into Pilate's residence in the city. Now, they would have waited until daylight to deliver Jesus to Pilate because they knew that Pilate began his work day at around this time. It wouldn't have been possible to bring him to Pilate before that. So Pilate is now ready to receive visitors at 6 a.m. Now, a little history on him for a moment. Pilate normally would have lived in Caesarea. Caesarea was his home. That is a seat of Roman government in Judea. It was a city that was on the coast of the Mediterranean, about 50 miles northwest of Jerusalem. If you go to Israel on a travel today, one of the highlights of any trip to Israel is to go to Caesarea. The ruins are well excavated. You can see them as they were in Jesus' day, more or less. And he lived there. That's where, he, that's where his home was. But on major feast days, like Passover, Pilate would travel up from Caesarea to Jerusalem to be on hand in the city in case of unrest. Remember, his primary responsibility as the governor of Judea was to keep the peace. That was his primary job. And the Romans had learned over their short history of ruling Judea that it was hard to keep the peace among the Jewish people. And as millions of Jews would flood into this city every year at Passover for the feast, then you'd find feelings of nationalism running high and unrest was far more likely. I mean, they were prone to riot at the drop of a hat anyway, but when you have so many people packed into the city on a day like Passover, anything could trigger a riot or unrest. So to keep the peace, Pilate moved his headquarters. The word uh, for headquarters is praetorium. He would move his headquarters from Caesarea to the Antonian Fortress. Now, the Antonian Fortress was a military fort that was in the city of Jerusalem. It was attached to the Temple Mount on the northern end, and it overlooked the Temple Mount as a garrison for the military, the Roman military. Uh, it allowed them to maintain peace in the city and to observe the goings-on inside the temple. Uh, Herod the Great, who rebuilt the temple, included this fortress as part of his design to placate the Romans and also because he needed their help. Uh, they installed him, Herod the Great, as king of the Jews, they called him, but he wasn't even a Jew. He descended from Edom. And so the Jews hated him, and he needed the Romans nearby to protect him and keep him in power. 
So the Antonian Fortress would be the seat of Roman government and Roman authority whenever Pilate came to town. And so today on Passover, you have Pilate living in the Antonian Fortress, his praetorium for the time being, and he rises early, takes his post at 6 a.m., ready to receive anyone who comes to him on the rumor of insurrection or riot or any such thing. He's determined to see Passover go and uh, come and go without any interruption, without any unrest. That's his goal. Now, he is particularly interested in seeing one prisoner at the start of this day. Because if you remember from our earlier teaching, in the evening before, the religious leaders would have had to have gone to Pilate with Judas and testify concerning charges against Jesus in order to get Pilate to release the Roman cohort of soldiers that eventually went into the garden and arrested Jesus. Pilate would not have let 500 soldiers just go anywhere unless there was a credible reason and a charge had been made by a witness. So that's where Judas came in last night. But having let all those soldiers go overnight, you know this man is interested in finding out what came of that. So the first concern he has when he gets up on his workday is what, what's up with the guy we sent the soldiers for? So he's expecting Jesus to be presented to him first thing on Thursday morning. And that's why the religious leaders have conducted their trial of Jesus overnight, even though it was illegal to try someone under Jewish law during nighttime hours. They did it because it was their only chance to have a shot at Jesus. They knew come Thursday morning they were giving Jesus over to the Romans. Now the Roman trial begins, and once again, the Jewish authorities are going to expect Judas to fulfill the second half of his bargain. They paid him 30 pieces of silver for two things. First, he was to be the one who gave testimony to Pilate so that they could release the soldiers, and he's done that. But the leaders also paid him to stand before Pilate and testify concerning those charges at trial. You know, he didn't need, they didn't need Judas at the Jewish trial because the, the religious leaders were in charge of that. They could trump up any charge they wanted. They could find some way to, to get Jesus. They didn't need help. But when they went before the Romans, they were not in control. They needed someone to stand there with Pilate and testify against Jesus or they wouldn't have a case. And in verse 3, Matthew tells us that as the morning dawns and as this trial was set to go, their witness gets cold feet. Matthew says Judas observes the Jewish trials and he hears the verdict of Caiaphas and he suddenly realizes he's being manipulated and he recognizes that it's his testimony that's responsible for Jesus' death sentence and I don't know why, but apparently he had not given any thought to that potential outcome. I like to think, what were you thinking, Judas? I mean, when you turn him in, what do you think was gonna happen? Somehow it didn't dawn on him that death would be the outcome and I, I suppose it's just because the prospect of receiving almost six weeks' wages in their time was enough to get his mind only on that and, and not to think about what might follow. Nonetheless, now the weight of what he has done, the weight of his actions have come to rest on his shoulders. He feels remorse, we're told, and he decides he can't go through with it. Now, some of your Bible versions at this point might say that he repented. And unfortunately, that's a poor translation of the original Greek. There are two different Greek words used in the New Testament that can mean either remorse or repentance. One of those Greek words, metanoeo, is the one that we use when we're talking about godly repentance, a true change of heart, spiritually 
speaking, metaneo. But the second Greek, work, Greek word that you can use for that same idea is metamelomai. And metamelomai is the kind of worldly regret that you experience when the consequences of your actions come on your head. All right, well, the word that's used here is melonai, which is the word for worldly sorrow, worldly regret. This is not godly repentance. He just feels guilty for selling Jesus out, and he regrets the consequences, and he he didn't anticipate how it was going to go, and now that he sees it, he wishes he didn't do it. And look, the world feels that every time it makes a mistake. There's nothing surprising in that. You don't have to be a believer to feel those feelings, and he certainly wasn't. So at this point, he goes to the religious leaders to return the money and to back out of the agreement. He doesn't want to have to testify. And in verse four, he begins by recanting his testimony to these men. He says, I blamed an innocent man. He didn't actually do what I said he did. And what he's expecting, I assume, is that when you return the money and you recant your testimony, it's gonna put a halt to everything, right? The Jewish leaders are gonna say, well, I guess there goes our case. And we can't do this now, and that'll end what goes on with them and end what goes on with the Romans, and Jesus will be released. But Judas is foolishly assuming that these religious authorities were motivated by truth or by justice in the first place. I mean, obviously, they've been manipulating his greed right from the start, and they're not about to let him off so easily, are they? And so much to his surprise, I imagine, they respond by saying, what is that to us? In effect, they're saying the same thing that Pilate says to Jesus at another moment, recorded in John's Gospel, when Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? You remember that statement? In other words, they're saying, we'll decide what is true. You don't get to tell us. This isn't up to you. This thing is out of your control. And then at the end of verse four, they say, see to that yourself. That's another, I think, poor translation. The, the Greek should have been translated something like, you shall see meaning you shall see this through. In other words, they're telling Judas, you're gonna testify just like you promised to, just like we paid you to. And they're implying in that a threat. These guys are powerful, and if Judas violated his word to them, they would see to it that he was killed too. Look, if they can put Jesus, an innocent man, to death, how hard would it be to put Judas, a conspirator, and false, you know, a perjurer, and I mean, there's, there's no uh, doubt that they could make worse happen to him, and he knew it. So the religious leaders refused to allow Judas to back out of his agreement, and they warn him, don't try changing your testimony. And Judas now is faced with the lesser of two evils. I mean, he could go through with what he's being asked to do, but not only will he Uh, give them what they want in a way that apparently he doesn't want to do anymore, but he'll also now have to worry about Jesus' friends coming after him, or so he might imagine. But I think more as a matter of pride, he refuses to do what they've asked. And in verse five, we hear that he throws the money back into the temple sanctuary as a protest against their conspiracy, and he leaves. But his problems don't leave also. He has a dilemma right now. If he testifies, he gives them what they want in their conspiracy, and more problems after that, perhaps. Maybe they even kill him so that he won't be around to tell anyone about their plan after the fact. On the other hand, if he refuses to testify or if he recants in front of Pilate, he'll likely be killed by these same men. So Judas takes the only escape that he has, suicide. Preferring to die by his own hand rather than to give them satisfaction in the testimony, 
or to allow them to kill him in a much more painful way, whether crucifixion or stoning. And that's how his life comes to an end. You know, a lot's been written about this guy and about what he did and about his remorse and about his choice to take his own life. And I have found most of that conjecture misses the mark because it doesn't pay attention to the context. You try to read too much into this guy's actions and you end up in the wrong place. You can see what this situation is about. It's as plain as day. You've got an unbeliever caught in a conspiracy and outfoxed by evil men. And he's left with the lesser of two evils. Let them choose my path or I'll choose my own for myself. Look, this happens every day. Judas was a devil. Jesus called him that in John chapter six. He sought to make a quick buck. He gave no thought to the consequences until it was too late. You know, in a sense, that's the story of every single unbeliever by the end of their life. I mean, not everyone has these situations, of course, but in a general sense, unbelievers live in ignorance of the truth, manipulated by unseen enemies, particularly the enemy, and they are unaware of the consequences until it's too late. And then the only choice they have left is death and eternal death. So what do you learn from this experience? I mean, it's, it's easy to dismiss this out of hand. I mean, it's Judas, he's an unbeliever, that's not me. Yeah, that's true. But I think there's a lesson here for believers, certainly, as well. And this is the lesson. If you allow yourself to be drawn into the evil of the world, you're gonna come out the loser because there is always someone willing to be more evil than you are. You cannot compete with evil. And if you play the game, you're gonna get burned. If you involve yourself with the wrong people, if you allow yourself to get tangled up in sin in one form or another, if you start to play the games the world plays, engage in the illegal and, and, and misguided schemes that define most people's lives, if you get into that world, trust me, you cannot compete. And part of the problem now for you is that if you are a believer, by the power of the Spirit in you, you've essentially got two hands tied behind your back when it comes to living with evil. I mean, you can persevere, you can make it work, you can find a way to do wrong things, we all know that, but you'll never have your heart in it. You'll never truly find the satisfaction in evil that the world often finds. You'll always be a little short of where everyone else is willing to go. And the effect of that might sound good, you might think, well, that's at least one good thing, right? I can't be as evil as other, well, wait a minute. The problem is when you swim with the sharks, you better be the big one. You cannot compete with evil. There is always someone more evil than you are, or willing to be at least, and you will see that effect in your life. You know, Judas thought he could swim with the sharks. He thought he could make this system pay off, right? He he could play the religious leaders, he could fool the Romans, and he'd get what he wanted out of it, and it all just sort of work out in the end. And yeah, he was evil. I mean, Judas was a bad guy, but he aligned himself with men who were in a whole nother league than he was. And then when he goes back to those religious leaders and says, why don't we call this deal off? Then he realized he made the wrong bet. Oh, and what of those religious leaders? They're pretty evil, right? You know, but they couldn't compete with an even greater evil themselves. They aligned themselves with the Romans. You know, the religious leaders thought that they could carve out a system within their world in such a way that the Romans had what they wanted and they got what they wanted. They could get rich, they could work with the Romans, they could make this kind of pay off in a way that secured their future and their people's future while playing the Caesar and the the local governor as they saw fit. But they underestimated how ruthless Romans could be. 
And in a few decades after Jesus died, they pushed a little too hard. And when the Romans showed up, they leveled the city, they leveled the wall, they leveled the temple, and they killed a million people just to show everyone what they can do when someone resists their authority. And as a result of what happened in AD 70, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both religious sects, ceased to exist off the pages of history. They played with fire and got burned. You cannot compete with evil. There's always someone worse. And I'm not saying this because I want you guys to sort of gauge how much evil you get involved in. I, I hope the point is obvious. The point is, stay out of the competition. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There's a, th- that passage is something I love because of the way it juxtaposes two thoughts that you need to hold together. The first thought is that anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted, he said. That is, there is no guarantee that a Christian will live a trouble-free life merely because you try to do the right thing. In fact, the promise is the opposite. I'm kind of amazed you guys keep coming back because I keep telling you every week that Christianity is not a trouble-free life. That's not a popular message these days. In fact, the opposite seems to be what people want to hear, and it's a flat-out lie. Anyone who's been a Christian longer than a day knows that being a Christian is not about having a trouble-free life. And, and it's not because God wants you to suffer. It's because you live in a world of evil that hates God and those who represent him, which is why all who desire to live a godly life are persecuted. If you've never been meaningfully persecuted as a Christian, may I suggest... The problem may be your desire to live a godly life because the more you look like Jesus, the more the world treats you like him. And the, that's the first truth to hold in, in, in your mind. You will see difficulties in this life because of who you are in Christ as you reflect Christ to the world. But it's okay. God's got your back. You've overcome this world. There's nothing they can do to you in terms of eternity. You're here for a time. God's got the plan. What comes, comes. He'll help you through whatever might happen to you. But coupled with that, you can go from bad to worse. The only thing worse than living a godly life and suffering persecution is living an evil life because that brings a whole nother level of misery. And so it's, it's sort of a weird message, right? We want to talk about being Christian is good, being in the world is evil. The Bible says being a Christian can suck. It can include some really, di- but being in the world, far, far, far worse. And ultimately, being a Christian moves you out of this world in a way where it's all good, it's all glory, it's all free of pain, suffering, tears, and so on. That's the future, yeah, and we'll get there, and there's a lot of good in the meantime. It's not all bad, I know. But don't get it in your mind that you can play both, have a little of the good on each side, blend them together in a life that lets you get the best out of the world and the best out of Jesus. That does not exist. That life does not exist. And if you choose to play with evil and live according to their standards, you will see that that was a bad choice. So just take the obvious lesson. Guard yourself from sinful desires. Seek to live a godly life. Don't let the measure of what you choose be based on what makes you happy because there is no such path that arrives at godliness. Find joy and contentment and satisfaction in Christ's pleasure in you and know that in the future, all things will be made good. All right, before we leave Judas's story, Matthew gives us an interesting footnote here on the 30 pieces of silver. We're just going to cover it in passing before we move to the last part of today's teaching. Look at verse 6. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, 
It's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood and they conferred together. And with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So here's the situation. You have this money. He threw it in the temple. He walked away. And the law says you can't keep that money in the temple treasury because it is money that has been gained through an illegal uh, practice of some kind, a conspiracy. So the money can't stay in the temple treasury. Normally, you just give it back. Uh, In this case, you can't. He's dead. So the money has to go somewhere. And it was legal to take the money that had been given and use it to purchase something for public good. And so that's what the priests uh, choose to do. I find it really interesting, right? These are the guys who would be willing to conspire against Jesus, uh, put an innocent man to death, but they won't take money that's come from some ill-gotten, which was a scheme of their own making in the first place, right? It, it's all just self-righteous nonsense. Uh, they buy a field near the city. It's actually in the, in the Valley of Gehenna, and it was a place they could then bury strangers. That's someone who comes into the city on travel. They don't live there. They die They don't have a family plot nearby. You know, in that day and age, you didn't cart bodies around. You just buried them. So this would be a field for somebody who died in that situation. It was called Elkadama, which is field of blood in Aramaic. And Matthew tells us that this uh, outcome fulfills Scripture. And he quotes here, and this might be something of interest for you to follow up on later, but when people look at this passage, sometimes it confuses people because he reads from Zechariah, but he says it's from Jeremiah, and people wonder what does that mean. Um, he's basically blending two prophecies together from the two prophets, but reading only from the one. You can go read more on why that's true online. We have an article on this very specific passage if you happen to be interested in that. But anyway, moving on, you see in the end of this, God harnessing the evil of Judas once more to do as he planned, even to the point of fulfilling scripture concerning what came of his money. All right, back to the text now. And now we move into the Roman trial. We'll get a little bit into it today. There's more coming. Let's start with Pilate in the Praetorium at 6 a.m. or thereabouts, meeting Jesus for the first time. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say, And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. This is a high-level summary of some things that we hear about in more detail elsewhere. But even without the background, you can tell right away, Pilate's not very impressed. Not with Jesus standing there for a charge of insurrection, claiming to be the king of the Jews. I mean, remember what Jesus looks like right now. He was, on his best days, he was never impressive to look at. That was by design. God made his son to be nothing special so that our interest in him wouldn't be based on sight, wouldn't be based on appearances. And today, he is bloodied, his beard has been partially torn out, he is been up all night, he looks tired. I mean, he's in the worst shape he could be in short of going to the cross. And here's this pitiful man standing before Pilate and the charge, you're gonna overthrow the Roman government. You're gonna be king. Oh, really, you're the king of the Jews? Pilate's not impressed. Obviously, that's charge. You notice, are you king of the Jews? That's the first we've heard that. That was not the charge at the Jewish trial. But it is the charge now. 
because blasphemy, not going to bother a Roman. Claiming you can be king, definitely going to bother a Roman. So this is the charge now that they have brought before Pilate, probably the charge that Judas leveled the night before when they dispatched the cohort, that he is now on trial for. And so Pilate, though he doesn't believe it and doesn't see much reason to, he has to take the charge seriously. He has to go through the process. And this is effectively a trial. And so he has no choice but to ask Jesus, what do you say for yourself in light of these charges? Now, here's the thing. There is no one to testify against Jesus right now. You ever had a a speeding ticket and then you go to court and the policeman never shows for some reason? What do they do? They dismiss the ticket because without someone to testify against you, then the charges can't be substantiated and you're presumed innocent in our system of government. And in the same way, more or less, without someone there to testify to these charges, there's no case. So all Jesus would have had to have done to be set free instantly from these charges and, of course, not go to the cross, all he had to do was to say anything in his defense. Even the least statement in defense of, his ter- of, of that claim would have been enough for Pilate to say, innocent, no charges filed here, go on. And so that's why Jesus stays silent. And the scripture said he would. In Isaiah 53, verse six, starting there, we first hear about us and then we hear about Jesus. Verse six says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Then verse seven, he, speaking of Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. You need to hear those two verses together because one explains the other. If Jesus had said anything in his defense, he could not have been the one upon whom God caused the iniquity of all of us to fall. He would have had a defense and that defense would have exonerated him, and there'd have been no court, uh, no trial, no conviction, no cross. He can't say anything. You ever been in a situation where you were falsely accused and you knew you could defend yourself and you wanted to say something? I I remember a situation from my experience in the military, uh, going through basic training, being in a military academy. You know, there's plenty of times in that experience when you aren't allowed to talk and you aren't gonna get your chance to talk and whatever they wanna say is what you're gonna have to hear. And there's this piece of you inside that's like, I know I could defend myself, but I can't. I'm under authority. And Jesus was under the Father's authority in that moment and was not gonna say a word. Now, I wanna clarify when it says he did not open his mouth. What Isaiah is saying there, what scripture says, is not that Jesus never spoke anything. That's, a, that's too literal of a reading. The point here is he never defended himself. That's what it means. It means he never spoke up to defend himself, to stop the proceedings. That's what it's saying. Clearly, he speaks at times. You saw that here in verse 11, but in John's gospel, we find out there was a whole dialogue between Jesus and Pilate during this time. The point is not staying silent for silence's sake. The point is saying nothing to exonerate yourself. And Jesus did that because Jesus is going to do what the Father required. So when Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus just says, as you say, and remain silent in any other sense, that is, in defending himself. And of course, he is the king of the Jews. Oh, and I might add, he's also the king of the Romans and every other Gentile on earth, right? He is king. The thing is, he is a king without a physical kingdom as yet. That comes in a future day. And while he stands there before Pilate, king, yes, but without the kingdom visible as yet, he looks pretty pitiful when he says, I am king of the Jews. It's a ridiculous statement to someone who doesn't understand the big picture. 
But it gets worse. I want you to imagine the scene. They're in the praetorium. This is a Roman building of some stature, some grandeur. Jesus inside with Pilate. And it's the morning of Passover. So we're told by John that the religious authorities who are hounding Jesus at every step, uh, trying their best to get what they want out of this uh, arrangement, they are outside the room. And they are yelling through an open door. They will not walk in because in their mind, they would be defiled by entering into a Gentile home. And if they're defiled, they can't participate in the Passover that day. So they are standing outside yelling as a mob of crazed lunatics through the door, shouting one charge after another against Jesus because they know they don't have Judas. And if anything happened, if Jesus said anything in his defense, their case could fall apart in a heartbeat. So they are doing everything they can to pile it up and influence Pilate against Jesus. And it's such a, it's such a strange scene. Jesus, small, pitiful, bloodied, you know, can't do anything to help himself, not saying a word. These men in their impressive regalia and robes and whatever else they were wearing and all their authority, standing outside yelling at the top of their voices against Jesus, Pilate between them. And in John's gospel, we hear that Pilate is truly a vacillator here. He is, uh, there's a point in, there in the gospel where John says he just bounces between these two crowds. He'll talk to Jesus, and Jesus will say something, and they'll go, okay, hold on a second. And he'll go back to the religious leaders, and they'll say something, okay, hold on. And then he'll go back to Jesus, and you get this visual of the ping pong ball of Pilate between who's really in control of the moment. Jesus is truly in control. The religious leaders think they're in control. And Pilate doesn't know what to do. There's probably no moment recorded in the Gospels that is a more visible reminder of the wickedness of the, of the hearts of the religious leaders than this one. Because on the one hand, they are pious and scrupulous and they won't even go into the house for fear that it will defile them. And on the other hand, they're standing there lying and conspiring to pervert justice against an innocent man. They are externally religious and internally, they're filled with deceit and violence. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 23, 25, when he talked about this, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, and inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. This pictures that so well. And so Jesus, standing there next to Pilate while all this hullabaloo is going on, Pilate looks at him in verse 13 and says, do you not hear what they're saying here? You're gonna get, you know, it's almost like he's saying, you wanna help me out here a little bit? Say anything at all and we can be done with this? You know, I didn't expect my day to start like this. I really don't wanna do this any longer. Can we just finish this off? You get the sense that he knows that these guys outside are full of hot air and they're just on a, a war path against Jesus and if Jesus would just help them a little bit, we can work this out and Jesus will not give him the satisfaction. Jesus says a few things to him but not what he needed. And you see the vacillation of Pilate just shuttling back and forth and you get the point. This is not a man who has the spine. He does not have the, the moral constitution to make the decision he needs to make and take the consequences. He is worried on the one hand about condemning an innocent man, but he's just as worried, if not more so, about these Jews starting a riot and getting him in trouble. That's his real concern, is losing his job. That's his main concern, is losing the peace and losing his job. And there comes a moment in John's Gospel where Jesus is talking to Pilate and they get into the issue of who you are. Who, is, who, who are you, Jesus? And Jesus begins to say, uh, you know, Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says to him, well, who told you that? Did you, did you figure that out on your own or did someone tell you that? His point is, are you saying that because you believe it? Or are you saying it just to get down to the bottom of this problem? And 
Pilate effectively confirms that no, he doesn't believe Jesus is the king of the Jews. And as a result, Jesus shuts up at that point. Jesus stops looking at that man as a mission opportunity and recognizes that the plan will just go forward without Pilate at that point. He is just a pawn in the overall picture. He is, Jesus is the king, but this world is not his. His kingdom is not yet here. In fact, another point in the conversation, he tells Pilate, if my followers truly wanted me to take over Rome, they'd be in here fighting for me right now. But the fact that they're not here fighting is proof to you that my kingdom is not of this world. What you learn in that last moment is something very important. Even though it's not fully recorded in Matthew, I gave you a good summary of it. Here's what you learned in that last moment. You learned that Jesus had a different mission than Pilate. You know, he asked that question, did you hear this yourself from someone? Do you believe this? Because Jesus was trying to find out, I think, in that moment, are we on the same page or not? And as soon as it became evident that we're not, Jesus goes back to his mission and leaves Pilate with his mission. And friends, we have the same calling now. We, we have a mission handed down by Jesus, and here's the mission. Our mission is not to save this world. This, this world's gonna burn up. If you haven't read the end of the book, it burns up. We don't have any hope to save it. Our goal is not to make this world into heaven. You can't. Our goal is not to make alignment with the world in such a way that we find something we can work on together that will get this world a little nicer than it was the day before. That is not the mission of the church. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you can do that without compromising the mission. I just don't know how you can because you only have so much time. There's only so many days on earth for any of us. If we spend a lot of time trying to turn this world into heaven, we've wasted those days when we could have been doing our mission, which is to recruit people out of this world so that they'll be ready for the kingdom when it shows up. And Jesus shows us there. Even in that moment when he's getting condemned by Pilate, he gave at least a a hint of, you ready to come with me in this? And when he said no, he says, okay, you go your way, I'm going mine. You know, his mission was to die for the sins of the world, to reconcile us to God. And he went through with it. Pilate's mission was to save his job. And I give you this takeaway at the end because uh, in the next few weeks, our country's gonna go through something. And I don't talk about politics up here. I never will, and I'm not starting today. But what I also wanna remind you is don't put your hope in anything that's coming in the next month or year or 10 years. There is no hope for this world. This world is going to fall apart. The Bible says, in fact, that before Jesus' second coming, the world will be reduced to 10 world governments. That's in Daniel chapter two. Well, you don't get to that until every country we have now falls apart somehow on the way there. Whether that's this year or next decade or next generation, I don't know. But I can tell you right now, trying to save this world or any part of it, including our own nation in that respect, is wasting time for the days you have to bring people with you into the kingdom. That's the world you're a part of. You're an ambassador to this world. And like any ambassador, you go to some other place that is not your home, you live there for a time representing your home to that world so that you can show them something of where you're from. And you don't put down roots, you, you know that one day you're going back. And similarly, we're on this earth for a time, but we don't put down roots, we're leaving one day and our kingdom is yet to come, we're just here for a time to recruit people out of this world. And to do that, we don't play with the evil of it, And we don't join ourselves to it in the hope of making it into heaven because you can't. You can't. Do charity, do get involved in politics if you choose to, be an active citizen if you you feel that's something God's called you to do. Nothing wrong with that. Just don't do it in place of your mission, which is to bring people to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what we're here to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for that mission, Father. Thank you for a mission we can accomplish through your grace, with the power of the Spirit, because there is no other mission, Father, that we could. I thank you, Father, that you've given us a body of believers who care about you and care about your word at the level that they do so that there is the hope in us to carry out what we learn. I thank you for the leadership here. I thank you for the volunteer and the, the staff here. Father, I thank you for the work that goes on every day here to make possible what we do. But most of all, Father, I thank you for the word that you've spoken to us through the years we've been here as a church and will be here, reminding us to have eyes for eternity and to consider what it is we're here to do. I hope we'll take our example, Father, from your son as he stood before Pilate, knowing his mission, and even in the last hours of his life, made a witness opportunity to the man who would put him to death. That's our relationship to this lost and dying world, Father, that even as we desire to live godly and they may choose to persecute us as a result, nonetheless, our hope, Father, is to show them the love of Christ. And thank you for that reminder today, Father. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.